0: Somebody asked me this morning, so are we actually going to finish 2 Peter? I said, yep, over the next, uh, Lord willing, over the next three weeks, we will come to the wrap-up of this great little epistle that I think has served us so well, and the Holy Spirit, I think, has used it to teach us and encourage us and convict us, and I trust that that will be the case this morning as well. You know, if you think about the major historical events that have happened throughout history, Um, you can come up with a pretty significant list of events that have left their impact in a variety of ways. Uh, I did a Google of the top 10 events and the top 15 events and the top 25 events that have changed history over the course of human history. And you get varying lists. There are a lot of them that are on every list. Um, some are, not on, are only on maybe CNN's list or maybe the CBS list. Um, but a lot of the ones that you see up there are significant events in the course of human history. Interestingly, the li- interestingly, the life of Jesus was really quite a ways down on virtually all the lists, which is an intriguing in and of itself. Um, in fact, the life of Muhammad beat out the life of Jesus on several of the lists. Um, when you live in the 21st century, you, you tend just to think about those events that maybe have happened in the last hundred years. And so you think, well, obviously it was you know World War II, or, I mean, my goodness, D-Day. Um, but if you talk to people who lived in other time frames of history, I mean, the Black Death was... It virtually decimated Europe. 75 million people died of bubonic plague. That's a pretty major event. Or the assassination of um, Ferdinand II. That was the beginning of World War I. You know, One-day event, which basically changed the course of nations. Now, if you go to the Bible and say, well, what were the big events in biblical history? We could probably come up with a fairly summary list, I think, just in this room. Creation: pretty major. Uh, and however you view it, whether you view it six literal days or six you know, epics, or you know, it doesn't really matter. creation in and of itself, the biggest event. None of the other events on that screen would be there were it not for the event of creation. And then, of course, the fall, you're just not very far into the book of Genesis, and you have the event of the fall of Adam and Eve. That changed the world. And so many of the things that are up there on that screen right now are the result of that event all by itself. Now The flood. God judging the world. God deciding, I've got to start this thing over again. And wiping out all of the inhabitants of planet Earth except for one man and his family. <clears throat> And then, of course, you move way far ahead down the pike to the birth of Jesus. Major event. The world didn't realize it at the time. But for the planet to be invaded by the Son of God was cataclysmic. And then the events of his life, his life event, but then especially culminating in his crucifixion, And this book tells us that the crucifixion, the death of Christ, um, our faith revolves around the death of Jesus Christ, which then led to his resurrection and his ascension. Now there's still one event on the biblical timeline that has yet to occur, and that is the second invasion of planet earth by the Son of God, when Christ will come a second time. It's an event that has caused much speculation over the years, lots of interpretation as to how it will happen, when it will happen. Um, Christians in every century have speculated as to whether or well, maybe it's going to be our generation. And, of course, there have been people throughout history who, that have scoffed at the idea. No, it's never going to happen. Why do you Christians still hang on to this weird belief that the Son of God is going to come a second time. It is to this issue that Peter turns his attention here as he moves toward the end of this second epistle. He's going to camp here for the last part of chapter 3, and the topic of Christ's return as it has been a significant topic for the history of the, throughout the history of the church, it still is. Just because you don't think about it every day, and yet maybe you should. Maybe we should think more about the second coming of Christ. And I would like to show you this morning that it probably could impact the way you live out your days much better if we always had before us on the horizon the coming of our Lord if that was a part of our reality. You see, friends, we will only have a good perspective on the days in which we live now and on our individual lives if we see our lives and our days in light of the bigger story, the story of God's redemption, God's plan. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, and as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Peter begins in chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works. The works that are done on it will be exposed. We know, Lord, that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God, might be complete. We know, Lord, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we thank you every single time we open your word, whether it's here, gathered with other saints, or in our homes with the Bible in our lap. Every word comes from you. And so we humble ourselves before your word. We joyfully receive your word because through it we learn how great of a God you are. Please teach us today. May the Spirit of God be our instructor. May we leave changed in some way that we might glorify God, having been here. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying, amen. So before we break these verses down a bit, um, what strikes me when I read what Peter says here about the second coming of Christ is just how straightforward he is. He isn't some wild-eyed lunatic trying to get his readers all fired up. That's not his motive. There are some preachers and authors today, who TV evangelists, who camp out in teaching about the end times and are pretty much obsessed with this one topic. They seem to always be working the latest world event into prophecy. I mean, I can almost guarantee that someplace, someone in some pulpit this week is telling his congregation how the summit meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un was a fulfillment of prophecy. I can guarantee it. That's not Peter. When Peter writes about these things, it is very matter of fact as he rolls out a very realistic, reasonable view of life. It's as if Peter is saying, do you want to understand life? Then let me tell you how it began, and let me tell you how it's going to end. And then you can find your place in that story. As we shall see, Peter claims that just as God created the world... And just as God sovereignly controls the world even today, he has been working out his redemptive plan and purposes throughout history that as king of the universe, he will pull down the curtain on this world at just the right time. The final act and the final scene will have played themselves out. And God decides when the curtain falls. And it's in light of that that Peter says, in light of the reality that this is going to happen, this is what I want you to know as the people of God, regardless of what generation you live in, regardless of what part of the world you live in, regardless of your income level, regardless of your education, does not matter. I want you to know how to live as a man of God. I want you to know how to live as a woman of God. Because the day will come when you will meet God. Now friends, I will say that as we address the coming of the Lord, are you not so thankful that we have the gospel story that precedes it? We could not handle this kind of a message if it were not for the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, because we're going to be talking about people perishing this morning, but have everlasting life. And so always keep in mind, when we talk about the coming judgment, it is preceded by the massiveness of the gospel, the grace of God, the amazing grace of God, and as we shall also see this morning, the, the phenomenal patience of God in waiting as long as he has. Well, let's see what Peter says. First of all, he says you need to remember the predictions. Point number one. Remember the predictions. Now, I always forget. Let me see. We started at 10. We're over at 11.30, right, Will? Or 11.45? 11.30, okay, 11.30. Okay, we'll see how we go. Remember the predictions. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so throughout this whole letter, we've seen, those of you who've been here over the last several months, we've seen Peter's concern with reminding God's people. Why? Because we're forgetful, and we especially forget important things. We seem to remember a lot of trivia stuff. We seem to remember a lot of insignificant stuff, but it's the, it's the big stuff that Peter says, I am writing to you again to remind you of these things. He began, began chapter one, I intend always to remind you. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. I will make every effort so that after I'm gone, you may be able at any time to remember, to recall these things. And so the fact is we just need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded of the second coming of Christ. Things that are critical for living good, productive, godly lives. Because I don't know about your days and hours and weeks, but mine very quickly get congested and consumed with a lot of stuff. And so it's in the midst of all that congestion and and being inundated with all the stuff of life that Peter wants to break through it all, break through the fog and say, in the midst of doing daily life, don't forget this, Christ is coming again. says, I want to remind you of the predictions. say, well, Gary, what are some of those predictions? Let me show you just a couple of them this morning. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. You say, well, Gary, but wait a minute. That was Isaiah. That was the Old Testament. Things changed No, friends, they didn't. It's the same God. It's the same plan. That was Isaiah roughly 2,700 years ago. Wrote those words. Jump ahead. Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. It's Revelation 6, 2,000 years ago. You see, friends, this world will come to an end. But it won't come to an end because the polar ice cap is going to melt. It won't come to an end because we're going to be hit by a meteor. You see, what's interesting is that many of the world's inhabitants seem to have the idea in their mind very clearly that the world will come to an end. But for them, it's all speculative. And in virtually all of their scenarios, the world's future destiny is either in the hands of humans, and whether or not we will take good care of planet Earth, and figure out how to get along with each other, or it's in the hands of aliens. But what's unique about the Bible's depiction is that the end will come by the intentional, sovereign command and word of Almighty God, and at the very Our he so decides. And no other way. So yeah, be environmentally smart, but don't worry about the polar ice cap swallowing New York. Set your mind on God and what he has said. The second thing Peter says, realize that there will be scoffers in all of this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I love that phrase, scoffers will come with scoffing. (laughs) Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the rest, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so scoffers will come with scoffing. Belittlers will come with belittling. Mockers will come with mocking. Disbelievers will come with disbelieving. And to a certain extent, I can stand here or sit here, as the case is right now, and say, I get it. I can understand why people might wonder about this whole idea of Christ coming again. Because you would think to yourself, if he was going to come, surely he would have come by now. I mean, the reasoning might go something like this. If there's a God, and that God is good, and if he said he was going to come and make all things right, it would have happened by now. But he hasn't, and so maybe he isn't, and so maybe it won't happen. See, you look around the world and you say, my goodness, there's so much evil in the world, so much suffering, wars, violence, disease, hatred. What's the point in waiting so long to come? Why hasn't God brought the curtain down? We're going to find out in a minute. But in terms of the scoffing, what brings about this scoffing that Peter says will happen in the last days? What motivates the scoffers to scoff? Is it because they have a strong, rational argument for why it won't happen? No, that's not it. Is it because they've researched the entire Bible carefully and have concluded it's a false teaching? No, that's not what it says. Look at what Peter says. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. See, friends, it's because they want to continue to revel in their passions. Scoffers scoff at the truths of God's word, not for intellectual reasons, but for moral reasons. See, the reason most people reject Christ is not on intellectual grounds. The reason most people reject Christ is on moral grounds. They do not want to live in a world where there is moral accountability. They do not want to live in a world where there is a judge. They want to live in a world where there is a playground but not a courtroom. And so they say there's nothing to worry about. Carpe diem, seize the day, live for the moment. Judgment, Pah, it's not going to happen. The third thing Peter says, revisit history. Verses 5 and 6. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And so Peter revisits the history of creation. He provides his readers with a history lesson, which is a good place to go. When you're trying to figure out the present, not a bad idea to study history. He says the heavens existed long ago, and someone says, seriously, Peter, we're going to go back that far? Yeah, we're going to go back that far, says Peter. Because if you're to understand what's going to happen, you need to understand what has happened. You don't want to rewrite history. You want to learn from history. You see, in order to understand the ending, you need to know the beginning. And friends, God is at both ends. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens. The earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. What's that all about? Genesis 1 tells us that God shaped the earth between two areas of watery mass. God said, let there be an expanse. In the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Notice, Peter says it all happened by the word of God. It all happened by the word of God. You know Genesis 1. And God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. Now, Peter says they deliberately overlook this fact. They purposefully, intentionally overlook historical facts. You say, why would someone deliberately overlook the facts of history? Why do you think? See, friends, I think the primary reason why we do not like to look at the past, you know, get this, the primary reason we do not like to look at the past is because we do not want to be in any way restricted in how we live in the present. I don't want to have to think about my yesterdays if it is going to restrain me in any fashion in how I live today. If I have to look at my past, and my past can be filled, your past can be filled with painful stuff, but my goodness, the value of looking at your past and by the grace of God, learning from history so that you can live better in the present, that's a gift from God. See, the people that Peter was referencing here have very personal reasons for overlooking the facts of history. That's what he says they do. They overlook the facts. You see, you deconstruct history in order to avoid the prospect of judgment. We do this on a small scale all the time, don't we? Kids do this. Little kids do this. I've watched my grandkids do it. They they, they did something wrong, they got caught, or they know that they're going to get caught, so what do they do? They construct a version of what happened so as to avoid the blame and punishment so that it goes to one of their siblings or the dog or whatever. Adults do it when we get pulled over for a traffic violation. We reconstruct history. We have some, some friends of ours. They were in a traffic accident a while back. They got rear-ended, so you've got to picture this. They got rear-ended, down on Manchester Road, I think in De Pere, hard enough so that their car in turn hit the car in front of them and that car in turn hit the car in front of them. Four cars. They pull off to the side of Manchester Road someplace. And while they were waiting for the police to arrive, the guilty driver at the back of the line, an elderly gentleman, pulled his car out into the street to the front of the line. What was he doing? He was trying to reconstruct history. (laughs) This was history. Boom. And his grill had proof to show it. (laughs) It's pretty hilarious, and the policeman apparently got a laugh out of it as well. But friends, we rewrite history in order to avoid the prospect of judgment. And so when it comes to the bigger idea of God judging people, you got to get this. If I look at the record of redemptive history in the Bible, I am forced to encounter the hand of God and to admit that God did this and this and this and this. God was there and there and there and there. History is locked in. Pearl Harbor was attacked. D-Day actually happened. And so did the flood. And so did Sodom and Gomorrah. History is locked in. But I want to be able to live and do as I choose with no regard to any history lessons from the past. This is my play, my role, my time on stage. I get to write my lines. And I don't need the spirit of Christmas past haunting my present. And so what do I do? I deliberately overlook the facts that I find to be most bothersome to my present. And it is terribly bothersome to know that God deluged the world with water. It's terribly bothersome to know that God destroyed two cities known for immorality and corruption. And that he has said He is going to do it one more time. Let's keep moving. Number four. Peter says you need to rethink the coming judgment. Verse 7. They overlook history. Verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You say, by the same word. What word is that? By the same word of creation, the, the, the same word that God used to speak the world into existence will be the word that he utters to bring it to its demise. God spoke things into existence. God will speak words of judgment and destruction upon the ungodly and unrepentant. He says, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. And so just as the pre-flood world system was drowned in water, the Bible says that the present world system will apparently be consumed with flames. And that's not just here. That's Jesus taught the exact same thing. But for the time being, God's keeping the world the way it is until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly who do not repent. But dearly beloved, and I say that to brothers and sisters in Christ, understand that just as God delivered Noah and his family from the flood, so he will deliver his own and protect them when his wrath against the world is unleashed. And that's where you want to find yourself. Number five, which brings us to this whole slow, slowness idea. Number five, Peter says, you need to regard slowness. You need to view slowness. You need to understand slowness. As the patience of God. Do not overlook overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Uh, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so that little phrase, as some count slowness. How do you count slowness? It depends, doesn't it? It depends on what you're talking about. Your standard for measuring whether or not something is taking too long. It's based upon your expectations and assumptions about the timing of whatever it happens to be. For example, if you go to a fast food restaurant, and it takes more than five minutes to get your order, you're perturbed. You wonder, why is it taking so long? I came here because I was in a hurry. On the other hand, if you go to Citizen Kane's or Tony's, and your main course comes out in five minutes, you're perturbed, (laughs) because it should not have shown up for probably 45 minutes, because you're there for probably a good two-hour enjoyable evening. It's all in your assumptions and expectations. If you microwave something, you want it done in 30 seconds. If you use the crock pot, you're willing for it to cook all day. When we go to Michigan in the summer and watch a sunset, we go out to the beach to watch a sunset over Lake Michigan, you are so glad that the sun takes its good old time because you enjoy every second. So what about with God and slowness? Peter gives a very interesting picture of time for us to consider. He says, with the Lord, one day is the same as a thousand years, and a thousand years is the same as one day. Now I tried to construct a little box diagram of this. So God's timing, one day is a thousand years. One thousand years is the same as a day. Our timing, one day is one 365th of one year and a thousand years is 365,000 days. God's timing versus our timing. Think of it this way. Maybe this will help. Using God's way of measuring time, as Peter presents it here, How long has it been since Jesus ascended into heaven? And you initially say, well, Gary, it's been 2,000 years. No, using Peter's definition of time, it has been two days. You see, brothers and sisters, as some count slowness, is not the way we count slowness. See, God created seasons and weeks and days and hours and sunrises and sunsets for our benefit. He is not controlled by time at all, nor is he driven by locking himself into our calendar and our schedule. Now, the reality is, you and I do operate in the realm of time, and so frankly, we need to understand what is it that causes God to move so slowly when it comes to Christ's return? Because you're still sitting there thinking, yeah, but Gary, it has been over 2,000 years. So what is it that motivates God to move so slow? And I will tell you categorically, it is one thing And one thing only that contributes to God's slowness, it is his unfathomable patience toward people like you and me. That's it. If that doesn't tell you worlds about the heart of God, nothing will. God is so long-suffering with some of my extended family. He's so long suffering with some whom you love. He is so long suffering probably with some of you. His patience, brothers and sisters and friends, his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. John MacArthur says, God has a vast capacity for storing up anger and wrath before it spills over in judgment. Vast capacity. But it will spill over in judgment. Ezekiel 18, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? What's the answer to that? No. God says, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Let's move on to number six. As a result of all the things that we've covered so far, the last is just kind of the final application. You and I need to ready ourselves and to do all that we can to ready those we love for the coming day of the Lord. Prepare. Be prepared. Because Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come. I started out with events from history. Let me end with a little piece of the same. D-Day was on June 6, 1944. We just celebrated, I think, or observed the 74th anniversary of D-Day. But it was Roughly two and a half years before that, December 7th, 1941, that Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese. Talk about a national lesson on not being prepared. I mean, the American forces were completely caught off guard. The records show that apparently when an Army radar operator sitting at his screen saw the blips going across the screen, reported them to his CO, the officer replied, it's probably just a pigeon with a metal band around its leg. And 45 minutes out, the attacking Japanese planes were on their way with the bombs. And at 7.55, the first wave of the attack began. Eight of our battleships and three cruisers were sunk or damaged. 220 planes destroyed, severely damaged. 2,400 of our service men and women were killed. Our country was caught off guard. Jesus said, Watch. For you know neither the day nor the hour. I would say to you this morning, the day of the Lord is going to come. In our generation, in the next generation, don't know. It's on the Father's calendar. And for the child of God, it should not catch you off guard. Therefore, live each day with a sense of preparedness. Am I living this day? As if it could be my last, whether it is my last because the Lord takes me home and I breathe my last breath, or because someplace on the horizon we see the Lord coming on the clouds. The people of God should be the most at-peace people in the world. And the people of God should be the most prepared people in the world. The Lord is coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Would you take just a minute, please? I do not know all that is going on inside of your heart today, but God does. And the one who will come one day as a judge first came as a shepherd, first came as the lamb of God, first came as the one who laid down his life for the sins of the world. He first came as Savior. And you can trust Him. You can trust Him with the rest of your life. It doesn't matter where you're at, it doesn't matter what all you've got going on in your world. We've all got stuff, we've all got histories. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to trust Christ or to renew your trust in Christ. Today is the day for you to come running to the Father and find Him ready to embrace you on Father's Day. you for coming the first time to our planet. Thank you, God, for invading this place with your grace and your love and your mercy. And thank you, Lord, that for those who are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. So I pray for my friends who are here today those who know you Lord that we could find great great peace but also a, an increased sense of preparedness that we could live lives that would show that we do believe that Christ is coming again and Father you know the hearts of all for any who are here who need Jesus would you nudge them would you call them would you not let them go through the rest of this day without turning to their father on father's day and trusting you we thank you that today we can celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ with the Lord's table and the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. He gave it new significance. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink from it, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Lord.